Hi, thank you for tuning in to The Naked Truth. I'm Alice Embers. I'm Lydia Frost. And today we have a special guest, Mayor Ted Terry. Mayor Ted Terry is popping our cherry. <laughs> so welcome, welcome Mayor Ted. Yeah, you yeah, are our, fir- our very first guest on the Naked Truths podcast. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alice and Lydia. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. So, Mayor Ted, we would love to just start with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about starting politics so young and what that's looked like for you and your journey a bit. Yeah, sure. Well, I, um, I've i been working in politics uh, for almost 20 years now. I realized that I'll be 37 next March, and I started volunteering when I was 17 year, years old in high school in Tallahassee, Florida, on a county commission race in Leon County um, nice. for extra credit. Um, and admittedly, I actually got really involved in politics and policy and issues uh, because of a girl, uh, to be honest. I was dating someone in high school, and uh, she would invite me over to um, her grandparents' house for Sunday dinner, mm-hmm. and they would only talk about politics and world affairs. And I was like, I have no <laughs> idea what anyone is talking about. And then so I just began to read about what's happening in the country nice. and the world. And the more that I you know, saw the injustices happening, uh, the problems that, are, that our society faced, the more I said, we got to do something about that. Um, and so I just, you know, was like, I'm going to run for office one day, but I don't know anything about campaigning or politics or anything like that. So I'm just going to learn. And so I just started out volunteering. I was a, a, a campus organizer at the University of Florida and throughout college. And then when I moved to Georgia, uh, over 15 years ago, I got involved in um, the Sierra Club and through the environmental movement and then just worked for campaigns and candidates for years and eventually found myself in Clarkston uh, seven, eight years ago mm-hmm. and uh, ran for mayor. That's amazing. Awesome. So you ran for mayor and you won. That's amazing. I won. And I, I barely I ran against someone who was 40 years older than I was. <laughs> wow. Um, and it was kind of a referendum on just the the future of Clarkston being mm-hmm. a, a more welcoming, inclusive place for uh, immigrants and refugees. Uh, we're the most ethnically diverse square mile in America, and we were running. We had a moratorium on refugee resettlement at the time, and so I won with fifty two percent of the vote. Just you know, in Clarkston, that's just a handful wow. of votes that mm-hmm. would have you know separated me from winning or losing and so when i became mayor in 2014 we officially restarted uh, welcoming refugees um, and have since you know welcomed thousands and since i've been mayor that is beautiful and that's true with a population so small i mean winning by 52 percent that's a pretty narrow margin impressive well done thank you thank you and and also that attests to you know every vote counts vote people Exactly. That yeah, makes a reminds difference. us how important every <coughs> single vote is. That even if mm-hmm. you think it's not going to do anything or you think it's too much of an opposition, every single time, every single vote. Yes, vote. So, Mayor Ted, how about if we jump into the questions? The same seven is what we're calling them. The same seven questions that we'll ask every interviewee on the Naked Truths podcast. You're our first. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a little bumpy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the first question we have for you, what do you think is important for parents to do to raise sex positive children? 
Well, I think um, one of the things I've uh, just you know read in the research and the literature, um, and actually I was this morning I came from a, an early childhood education uh, conference, <laughs> and yeah. uh, we were just uh, you know just this the notion that um, if you uh, don't talk about you know. Uh, sex, about um, gender norms, mm-hmm. about uh, just differences, um, and this could be racial differences mm-hmm. or ethnic differences or religious differences mm-hmm. at yes. a young age, then, you know, young people um, and children think that there's something wrong with it or that's bad. And yes. so I think it's important for just as questions come up to be, pro- you know, be proactive um, and to don't let create that space where, um, you know, a child thinks that something is bad because it's different. Yes. Um, and begin to confront that, you know, early on. And we can do that, obviously, as parents. Um, but also, I think it needs to be a part of, you know, the early childhood education system. Mm-hmm. You know, in Clarkston, we're trying to create a, a universal um, after school and 3K and pre K system here where we really want to make sure that from, you know, from birth <clears throat> up until, you know, going into school that um, every child in Clarkston has access to quality early learning. Wow, that's incredible. That's- That's great. And it really does take a village. I mean, I like how you pointed out it's not just for parents only, but the culture needs to change because we do imply that there's shame around all the differences, gender norms, ethnicities, all of it. So exactly. um, One is always viewed as better or the one that you want to strive for. And then if you don't hit that, it's okay if you hit this one. And then as you go down the mm -hmm. line, it becomes less and less acceptable, less and less and more shameful you and Mm -hmm. more shameful. I love what you said, Mayor Ted, about differences and highlighting the differences. Something that we say often in relationship anarchy and ethical non-monogamy is different doesn't mean better. Different just means different. Yeah. It means that there's so much space for you to be who you are and be fully accepted for that. But you're right. We have to start that culture so young. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. What do you think something comprehensive sex ed should include? Well, um, that's a great question. I wasn't prepared for that one. <laughs> um, you know, look, I mean, I, you know, I think I'm certainly from like the generation where, uh, we did have sex education, mm-hmm. you know, like in like fifth grade, I believe. Right. How um, did you find that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important. Um, you know, obviously, uh, there's still parts of this country that are still in the abstinence only mm-hmm. sort of, um, paradigm. And, you know, when we talk about just, you know, just, again, evidence-based policymaking, uh, when we talk about uh, reducing STDs, um, reducing childhood pregnancies, um, the, you know, the more information is better. And, you know, to your point earlier about just something being different, being bad and, um, you know, not... you know, not uh, you know, sort of addressing those those issues early on. Um, you know, it uh, it it creates, I think, um, uh, uh, uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ignorance. Mm. Um, and you know, when you when you have ignorance or you don't know, um, you know, what uh, what the best practices are mm-hmm. or you know what you know the biology is, um, mm-hmm. it, it it causes problems that we're going to have to you know pay for as a society yes. in the long run. Agree. Um, so we just need to be you know this is like my um, you're going to hear me say it over and over again. We got to be proactive. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. we, we need to um, confront a lot of 
the uh, the the bias um, that I think exists sort of within our own our own personal sort of uncomfortableness um, and uh, you know, the way that we the way that we were raised is the only way there mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Um, and so certainly I mean I think you know um, uh, it it has to be you know like you say it has to be comprehensive so what yes. should it include I mean it, it can can include um, discussions from you know all the way from you know the birds and the bees obviously mm-hmm. um to safe sex to um you know just whether they're consequences for health or mm-hmm. you know your life um but also just about the um uh the uh, the the issue of sexual identity and orientation mm-hmm. and just you know be very open and candid about yes. that um and i think to your point um, Alice, the um, uh, this this idea that just because something might be different or not what you're used to mm-hmm. is, doesn't make it you know bad. Yes, yeah, exactly. I liked hearing you say evidence based policy making. Mm-hmm. We need that in all Listen the up. things, don't we? <laughs> yeah, evidence based, evidence based decisions, you know, in government policy. Yes. Hmm. It's almost like it's there in front of us, and all we would have to do is look at the research to come up with right. these things. <laughs> Imagine that. <Yeah>. Great idea. <laughs> Mayor Ted, how would you say you define your feminism? Well, I would define my feminism, and I guess I would just define, you know, yeah, so how I would define feminism is uh, first um, recognizing that uh, that we have a, a patriarchal system mm. in this country, in this world, and, you know, that the systems of power that exist in our society were designed um, and led and have been led by by men, mm-hmm. um, and mostly white men, let's be honest about that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the first step in, you know, solving, you know, problems is admitting you have a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be the first step in how I define feminism is recognizing that there's power structures in our, in our world that are designed, uh, to be inequitable. Um, That's great. and so we have to acknowledge that problem. Um, uh, and then, you know, you just, we need to, whether it's, uh, you know, tearing down whole systems and rebuilding them or, you know, using evidence-based policy approaches mm-hmm. to talk about how we actually can create equality, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in education, whether it's in our society, um, you know, in, uh, in in so so many areas, um, I think that when we re- uh, change systems of power or rebuild systems um, that um, reject the notion that um, your that the gender that you are identify with um, is somehow somehow sort of uh, a limiting factor to who mm-hmm. you are. You know, yeah. in the economy, in the society, and so that equality, I think, is the goal. Um, and you know, from there, I mean, obviously, you know, we'll. I don't know if you could ever hundred percent solve a problem. Um, there always be these issues that we have sure. um, interpersonal. Um, but let's start with the, you know, with the 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 recognition that we still have systems in our society that um, that need to change, um, mm-hmm. and um, and let's work on those. Yeah. Very well said. Thank you. Thank you for that. All right. The next question we have is, what do you think the hardest struggle parents are facing today? Well, I can just speak in from the Clarkson perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a working class town. Um, we have, you know, 50% of our population is foreign born. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have, uh, uh, 
parents who work long hours um, and for not very much pay. Mm-hmm. And so number one, you know, childcare in general is just, is too damn, you know, the, the cost so is too damn high. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the rent is too damn high. Yeah. You know, if you're, if, you know, if you just, if you live in a, you know, in the lower to middle class right now in this country, um, you just, you know, not, are not going to make enough in wages to take, to, to sort of take care of all of the basics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I do consider childcare uh, to be one of those, um, you know, universal rights where, nice. you know, it's something we create a society where that's something that, you know, no one should have to forego the opportunity for early learning mm-hmm. um, or after school programs um, yeah. uh, because they can't afford it. And so, you know, that's, I mean, that is probably the hardest struggle I think that I see parents facing is mm-hmm. that they would like to spend more time with their children, but because they have to work extra hours um, because they just don't make enough per hour, yeah. um, they um, they can't spend time with their children, and it's, it becomes a you know a real strain on families. And you know if we you know really live true to our what we say in America is you know that we have strong family values, mm. um, we would create universal systems uh, for childcare um, and universal 3K and pre-K and yes. after-school programs. You know, one because it's the right thing to do, uh, but mm-hmm. two we also know like just this you know where I was this morning. You know we know that for every dollar spent on early learning. Uh, it pays twelve dollars in dividends down the road in reducing wow. mass incarceration and wow. re- de- decreasing dropout rates and creating, you know, more six um, uh, uh, exponential economic uh, success over the lifetimes of that child. Yes. And so this is like the best investment that we can make in our society is is to support parents. Looking at it as an investment and not just putting a band aid. Um, on the high cost of childcare, we're thinking about it um, as an investment in our society. Yeah, I, I think it would be beneficial for a lot of people to make that shift mentally. I agree. Also, what's the expectation if you don't put into the children? If you don't educate them and give them the best chance for success, then all you're doing is bitching about them when they start to run things and you don't like the way it's happening because. Mm-hmm. You haven't taken any control of that. You just mm-hmm. would rather blame instead of and band-aid instead of saying, hey, this is a systemic issue that we're facing now in America. How do we fix it? Yeah. I agree. I think that is the hardest struggle. Childcare has always been an issue. I had to quit my teaching job mm-hmm. when I was teaching in Buckhead because childcare was too expensive for me to live on a teacher's salary. And have to put my kids into full-time childcare. We couldn't do it. So I had to, not that I was super upset about giving up teaching in Buckhead. but (laughs) (laughs) I think it's good for the kids too. I mean, children are supposed to be raised by their, you know, family unit, but also the community. Um, It takes a fucking village. Yeah, it's really, it really does benefit the children to have um, a, a dynamic group of caregivers throughout their childhood, different perspectives, different people. I think it's healthy overall. Exactly. And it creates and fosters emotional intelligence. It teaches them Mm -hmm. how to model those behaviors. It shows them what it looks like to have to listen to other adults and, you know, what it looks like to fall in line with the other kids and to have to deal with those. Maybe um, someone's playing with your toy and you don't want to, and you have to like figure all of that out. It's so good for children to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also, I mean, this is a, it's an, an ancient practice. Um, it's not like it's, you know, something that's, right. um, we, we just discovered. <laughs> right. Together. I mean, and you know, what we, the, the privilege of 
living in a community like Clarkston, where you have people from all over the world um, who come from different sort of backgrounds and cultures um, and ways of mm. child rearing um, and sort of community support. And so they, you know, we have this really interesting sort of kind of hybrid culture where there is um, whether I think, you know, that is the norm in other parts of the world where, um, and whether it's because of resource strain, mm-hmm. um, because of, um, of just, you know, tradition, um, the, the, you're right. The village really is, you know, a core part of the development of, you know, the young person, mm-hmm. um, and supports family units. Um, and, you know, it's something that I think, you know, just as Americans were, maybe kind of like yearning for that Mm -hmm. um, because we have become even more isolated in the digital age. Um, And if you live in Atlanta, you know, you spend like, you know, four hours of life in traffic probably (laughs) uh, every day. And so, you know, just I feel some people are sort of like saying, I feel like I'm missing something Mm -hmm. from my life and I don't want to, you know, you know, live this way anymore. And so we, so as, as politicians and elected leaders, you know, we have to create environments and systems that actually will allow people to come together and, you know, uh, coming together over the future of our children, you know, parents and mm-hmm. um, educators um, and business leaders and politicians all saying, you know, this is something that we can all, you know, spend time on. Uh, in Clarkston, we do a, uh, every year we do the Tell Me a Story Festival, which is a big mm-hmm. one day festival where it's basically all about reading and, you know, sort of, you know, kind of uh, appealing to the creative side of mm-hmm. our young people in our community, um, and it brings together all aspects of our of our um, town, and it's just a fun day. It's centered around children, um, but it, it brings together people who may ordinarily not like interact with in their you know your your daily life, mm-hmm. um, but you, you build those connections, and so that's to me just a it's an opportunity for us to build community um, and to do it in this one sort of area of like you know around the development of our children. Yes, I love that. That sounds great. I also want to come to that festival. I'm going to mm-hmm. talk to you later. About Please it. do. <laughs> what do you think you need to make more time for, Mayor Ted? Um, well, I'm running for U.S. Senate right now, so I need more time for um, uh, relaxing. Yeah, I would say probably. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't quite. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of losing my weekends. Uh, I didn't. I didn't really have a quote unquote weekend the last two weekends. <laughs> so uh, you know, kind of kind of wears on you. Um, but uh, uh, Andrea and I definitely try to. Uh, reserve. We usually call it Project Sunday, where we sort of, you know, say that Sunday is, you know, there has okay. to be space for mm-hmm. just me and her. Um, it didn't happen this last Sunday, but for various reasons. Uh, so we'll have to make up for Project Sunday times two in, in future weekends. Sunday's coming <laughs> twice next week. <laughs> I love that. I think it's so important. We talk a lot on the podcast about the importance of self-care and how taking space to do the things that you love will fill you up so that you can continue doing this. And this is mm-hmm. a this is a battle. You are in a battle state. This is a mm-hmm. battle. So we mm-hmm. need you full and ready to go so that That's we can continue That's exciting that you're work. running for Senate. That's great. Goodbye, That's really David great. Purdue. See you later. <laughs> you got it. Mm-hmm. What is an issue U.S. voters are currently faced with that you want to see more conversations about? Oh, there's so many. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, I, I'm a millennial and uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time um, with, you know, my generation, younger voters. Um, they're, you know, the under 35 year old voting block is the largest voting block 
in America coming up for the 2020 election. And so this is like sort of the first time that, you know, young voters actually potentially have sort of the X factor deciding our future leaders. Um, and, you know, I mean, look, the, you know, for, for decades, you know, the older generation has been the majority of voters. And mm-hmm. so you look at the median age of our, you know, politicians in the Senate, it's like 61 years old. Oh. Um, the old saying is that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, younger voters have been, um, you know, have had chunks taken out of them mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, based on the policies, whether it's, you know, student debt, um, climate change, um, health care and health insurance coverage, affordable housing. Um, and, you know, one issue in particular that I think that across the board, like from, you know, just my age range down to the, you know, pe- you know, young ones who are in high school and middle school and even elementary school. And that's um, just the epidemic of mass shootings mm-hmm. and mass violence in our country. You know, I was in high school when Columbine happened. And so I have literally grown up, you know, as you know, they call it the Columbine generation mm-hmm. of just a, a, a moment in American history where um, mass shootings uh, just became much more common um, and access to weapons of war mm-hmm. that are designed to inflict as much damage um, on the human body as possible um, are readily available. And so, you know, I'm I'm in support of, uh, of a, a complete policy, you know, 180 mm-hmm. on uh, guns in this country. Uh, we need universal background checks. Yes. We need red flag laws. Yes. Um, we need uh, to do enact the peace plan. And the peace plan is being supported by uh, March for, for Our Lives, mm-hmm. um, a group of students who came out of um, the Parkland shootings. And um, they are, um, you know, promoting along with, I think right now only one presidential candidate, Beto O'Rourke, um, promoting uh, this peace plan. Um, and, you know, the key feature of that is a, a buyback program mm-hmm. of assault weapons. Um, they did it in New Zealand. They did it in Australia. Um, this doesn't happen in other parts of the world um, where there are, you know, wealthy, you know, modern societies. Um, and, and the reason why is that average civilians can't get access mm-hmm. to weapons that were designed to inflict mass casualties in a short a period of time. And so, um, so that's something that I just, I hear so much about. Um, and, um, it's, it's an issue that, um, that I'm going to, I'm going to be bold on. Um, it's something that someone says, Oh, you don't want to mm-hmm. upset the the gun owners out there. <laughs> um, but I think actually that most gun owners would agree that, um, that, you know, uh, unverified people, civilians shouldn't have access, you know, to AK 47s. Yeah. If you want to have your hunting rifle, if you want to have a shotgun for protection, um, you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. fine. Um, you know, no one's talking about that, but a mandatory buyback of weapons that were designed, um, for war, um, shouldn't be readily accessible by the civilian population. Yes, absolutely. And the trauma that we're causing our children just from the drills that they have to go yeah. through, my dragons were telling me the other day they got lollipops and had to sit in the closet for an hour and practice being quiet because it was the day for the drill. And them talking about it, I can see that it was one of those things. Do you remember when you were a kid and you were afraid of something? So you had to keep talking about it. You had to like keep ruminating over and over again about it. We talked about it probably 70 times that night. And then again, the next morning, this is something that we're doing that's traumatizing our children. We are walking them into trauma at such an early age. The dragons are in first grade. There's no reason that they should be experiencing something like this and having to navigate the feelings of 
What if a person comes in and tries to get into my classroom and their teacher saying, I'm going to protect you? Like, that's too heavy. That's too heavy for six-year-olds. They don't know how to navigate that. They don't have the capabilities of understanding what that means. Um, ooh, I got a little. <laughs> Can you hear me? Can you guys hear me? Yeah. My son also uh, came home and told me about the active shooter drill that they had in kindergarten. And um, when you're, he was showing me how if you're in the bathroom to stand on the toilet... Uh, so the active shooter can't mm -hmm. see you in the stall or uh, the word he was using was bad guy. And he was very matter of fact and mm -hmm. didn't seem traumatized. I was more traumatized than mm -hmm. him. By him. <laughs> um, and circling back to evidence-based policy, I've only seen little blurbs, um, like headlines of articles, but aren't they saying now that active shooter drills aren't even necessarily effective at keeping kids safer during um, a shooter drill, but what would keep kids safer is everything, Meritad, you just talked about. So there's that. Yeah, I saw that too. I've seen a few different articles talking about how it's like security theater. You are pretending yeah. to put things mm. into place that are going to make you feel safer, but it's not actually going to do anything in that situation. It's not going to help. It's the same as arming teachers. We've seen over and over again that that's actually not going to do it. That's yeah. not can going we to not, help. Can we that's, not arm teachers? Please. What a disastrous idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, just I think our political system today, I think there still exists the uh, the the sentiment of half solutions, half mm -hmm. measures of band-aids, as you said, um, when what we really need is a systemic change. Yes. We need to actually solve these problems. And whether it's climate change, whether it's mm -hmm. mass shootings, whether it's, you know, the, the millions of Americans who don't have health insurance, um, if we just sort of pick around the edges, it will we continue yes. to marginalize people in our society. There will continue to be winners and losers. Um, and it is something that, you know, just, I, you know, honestly, like, you know, I've had it, you know, mm -hmm. we have to um, quit, um, you know, incrementally approaching these problems. Mm -hmm. um, we need large scale, um, bold ideas and solutions that will solve yes. these issues once and for all. And you're exactly right. I mean, the, you know, our Senator, Senator Perdue, who I'm running against, has proposed legislation that would allow schools uh, to basically, you know, change the way they're designed uh, to become fortresses. Um, uh. And again, that is just one little tiny little step. Um, mm -hmm. But we know what is causing mass shootings. It's guns. And yep. what's causing you know, mass shootings <clears throat> of infinite, you know, with um, exponential death and destruction, mm -hmm. it's guns that have... Um, that are uh, assault rifles that mm -hmm. are designed to, you know, shoot as many bullets out in as little a time as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. So the solution is very clear: restrict that access to those types of guns. Um, you know, do a buyback program. Australia and New Zealand did it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Australia did it almost 15 years ago, and they haven't had. Um, that, you know, a, an incident, a repeat of an incident where they did have a mass shooting and their society reacted. Um, mm -hmm. and because of it, their, their people are safer. Evidence. Evidence. Did you guys see Dick's sporting goods recently yeah. destroyed, um, a large quantity, like $5 million worth of assault rifles? Yes. I saw that uh, too. NRA yeah, reminder to go shop at Dick's this weekend. Like, right? let's go buy some, you know, velour tracksuits at Dick's. <laughs> I'm there. 
I'll rock my velour tracksuit at Pride this weekend. <laughs> yeah, girl. <laughs> well, the, the NRA is definitely worried. Um, you know, and look, I mean, part of the peace plan is to uh, is to actually uh, begin investigations into mm-hmm. the NRA because you know what we've seen with Russian interference, not just in our elections, but also just in our policymaking. Yes. Um, and so, you know, and and that that corruption that exists between the gun manufacturers. Um, and the people who are advocating for greater gun you know, proliferation. Mm-hmm. Um, these are, uh, you know, there's a lot of money in, in politics and lobbying. And the, the NRA, uh, you know, represents a very small portion of, um, you know, Americans, but they wield, you know, you know this, this massive power. Um, and it's so interesting because, like, you know, you'd think that, like, um, there'd be, like, this proliferation of more people buying guns. But mm-hmm. the reality is that um, uh, the, the, the the vast majority of guns being purchased in the last, you know, 15 years uh, are just by people who already own guns. And so there's this um, this uh, fear factory that was created yes. when President Obama was elected, yes. that Obama's going to take all the guns and so you need to stockpile. So they created this sense of fear mm-hmm. um, that someone was going to take your guns. Um, and we're talking about, you know, people thought they were going to take my hunting rifle, yes. um, or my handgun for protection, um, and created this sense of fear that allowed the gun manufacturers to make millions and millions of dollars. And so as long as the, the policy is designed to, you know, enrich, you know, the people that make guns, mm-hmm. um, that is a corrupt system. Um, and so, you know, we've got to end the, that type of funding of our elections and yes. our lobbying. We need to have a lifetime ban, on elected officials becoming corporate lobbyists. Yes. Um, we need to uh, have truly publicly financed elections. If you have true publicly financed mm-hmm. elections like they do in other countries, um, the evidence-based policy approaches become part of the normal conversation. Yes. And it doesn't become, uh, oh, well, my facts are better than your facts. Uh, it becomes, well, here's what the evidence says. And we could debate the evidence mm-hmm. and you know, and the, the, the merits of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't need to be debating you know, whether... Um, you know, climate change exists. Yes. Um, yes. Precisely. Uh, you know, or if you know, if we if we limit access to, you know, a hundred round magazine, you know, clips for you know assault rifles, mm-hmm. will that actually you know make our community safer? We know it will. <laughs> we already know the answers to these questions. It's just the fear that people up top are going to make less money. That's really what it comes down to is what I'm hearing. It's just about money. And that's scary Mm -hmm. that our whole lives are being put in the hands of people who are only interested in monopolizing monetarily. They just want to make more. What is one book you'd recommend, Mayor Ted? (laughs) One book. Oh, only one book. Um, Only one. Only one. Only one. Give us all of the books you'd recommend. <laughs> well, um, the book that I'm reading right now is The Silk Roads, um, which is just a, a re- sort of a retelling of world history mm. um, through sort of commerce and um, and trade. Uh, but it looks into religion there. So I'm reading that. Um, of course, Andrea is my chief. She's like the prolific reader in the household. And she's got like five books at any one time that she's reading. And so she's kind of like my... Andrea, we're coming to you to get book recommendations. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so I only I did not read this book, but I because Andrea has talked so much about it, I pretty much have read it um, and has informed my position on reparations mm-hmm. in this country as a policy. And everyone's been talking about, mm-hmm. do you support reparations? And the standard line right now is, oh yeah, I support the study committee, which is you know kind of a, a bullshit answer. Uh-huh. Um, it just means it's sort of just like, well, I don't want to talk about it right now. Um, so the book is The Color of Law. Um, yes. It is. Uh, it goes 
beyond just the the history of redlining in terms of housing discrimination in our country, but it actually looks at exclusionary zoning laws. Mm-hmm. And so this is what the, the, the terminology is de jure segregation. So legal segregation of our communities, uh, not de facto segregation. So there's this myth out there that communities are more segregated than they ever were, and that's because people are just choosing, choosing to live separately. Yes. But yes. we know from the history of just going to the after World War II and mm-hmm. the GI Bill, um, all the way up and through, you know, just you know, in current modern times, communities, uh, city councils, county commissions, state legislatures, federal housing policy have created exclusionary zoning rules and housing tax credit stipulations that have incentivized the mm-hmm. segregation of our um, of our communities. And this is actually a part of the law that, that, that directly, you know, quite honestly, has impacted black Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of point to immigrants or, you know, Hispanic populations, but there is a history of going back to you know, you know, 60, 70 years ago of a black family could not live yes. in parts where affordable homes were being built. And so mm-hmm. we're forced to live near industrial areas, mm-hmm. the highly polluted, mm-hmm. contaminated parts of our country, or just to live in apartment complexes that were sort of run by slumlords. Yes. And so the, the reparations, you know, p- policy that I'm proposing is um, reparations through housing remedies that um, the author talks about in The Color of Law. And it would be, you know, it's a, a multifaceted approach, but it would recognize that there's people living today that weren't ac- given access to this generational wealth building tool that is the the, the American dream of home ownership. Um, and um, and that there needs to be some sort of reparations for that. And, there, and through remedies, whether they're um, direct subsidies, um, to um, you know, black families uh, who lived in areas of the country where they literally could not buy a mm-hmm. home because of who they were, um, uh, re um, reimagining and sort of retooling our federal tax housing credit program, where if you are in a city that ha- does not have inclusionary zoning, and in fact has more exclusionary zoning policies, um, you would not re- your community would not receive those federal housing tax credits and you those no federal subsidies. You incentivized to do such a thing. Exactly. And so we need to use the federal tax dollars um, to promote more integrated housing. Um, and this is, you know, and more mixed income. Mm-hmm. This is looking at communities where, like here in Clarkston, you know, we're the first city in Georgia to uh, pilot um, a tiny home neighborhood <gasps> development. And so that's already breaking ground as of last week. It, it'll be seven homes on a half acre lot, uh, 400 to 500 square foot oh, homes. That's incredible. Um, um, but with our ordinance, our development ordinance that we crafted was it's actually called a cottage home ordinance. Mm-hmm. It's, so, it's from 1,200 square foot homes down to 400 square foot homes. Mm-hmm. And so it creates a, a, an incentive for a range of housing options. And the funny thing, um, uh, Alice is that the the that the home that you know were built homes were built you know sixty years ago they were all like a thousand square foot homes like right. the, the house the, we're in the, the queer eye mansion over right. here <laughs> at Clarkston um, this is a, a thousand square foot home mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so you know living in a smaller home is not unrealistic um, yes. but the development of housing lately has been luxury townhomes luxury apartment complexes McMansion yeah, Enfield um, and so we're not creating a range of housing yes. options. Um, that are one more affordable, but also more energy efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, can create more uh, intentional communities. Like this cottage home ordinance uh, mandates that 50% of the homes have to have a front 
facing porch onto a communal green. And so it actually creates just by design that you will, you know, when you walk out your front door, you're going to probably run into your neighbor (laughs) because their front um, step is, you know, 50 feet away and they're facing a Mm -hmm. a green and a community garden. Uh, My favorite, um, you know, uh, incentivized housing development that we're working on right now is what's called a conservation community. And so in Clarkson, we're trying to create more urban agriculture and micro farming and so we envision future communities that have um, affordable apartments, uh, cottage homes, mm-hmm. um, maybe some nicer luxury townhomes. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a, a broad array of housing development options and affordability all centered around a farm um, and a farm that is actually a working farm yes. that produces food. And it's this old fashioned idea that we've learned a lot from our refugee you know, mm-hmm. residents that uh, centering a community around farming and food um, is a way to bring people together. And so you bring together the best of both worlds, affordable housing, an intentional community, a community that is you know, producing and mm-hmm. harvesting this bounty of food. And we're talking about not just crops, we're talking about beekeeping and yes. chickens and eggs and milking goats. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and really trying to bring people together. Yeah. So, so the color of law, would, it, I definitely recommend it's informed, informing my uh, approach and policy to reparations um, and it's reparations through housing remedies, which, you know, we don't have to look to someone, you know, 200 years ago that was a slave. We can mm-hmm. look at people today that are alive yes. um, who have been um, uh, discriminated against and who deserve some sort of um, uh, restitution. Absolutely. Mayor Ted, are there any other policies that you want to talk about and tell our listeners and what we can look forward to seeing from you in the future? Well, I'll definitely have all of my policies on my website, tedforgeorgia.com. I've um, spoken up against or spoken out on favor of um, resettling more refugees mm-hmm. um, through the Grace Act, which would set the, the 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 floor of refugees that America would welcome to about 110,000 yes. every year, which is the historic average yes. of the 40-year program. Um, I have uh, on my, my website, I have policies right now on a $15 minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clarkston was the first city in Georgia and actually we're still the only city in Georgia to have a $15 minimum wage for our city employees. Um, and we did that three years ago. So wow. you were like, ahead of the curve. Yeah. So sure. we, we probably need to you know raise it to $16 sure, sure. now inflation and consumer price index has gone up. I love uh, that you said that. I love that you understand that 15 doesn't mean 15 forever. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if the minimum wage was pegged to an inflation back in, you know, when the minimum wage was created, um, uh, to the, uh, under, uh, Richard Nixon, um, it would be closer to about 16 to $17 an hour, um, in in certain many parts of the country. And so, you know, so that's the policy I have on on my, uh, on my website. Mm -hmm. Um, the other one, um, is, uh, Medicare for all. And I have a really, you know, just a a five minute read on my medium page about, um, you know, the long-term care system in this country and about what it means to be a caregiver and mm-hmm. how care, you know, two thirds of uh, caregivers are women. Um, and so it becomes a, a women's issue and how we're going to take care of 45 million Americans who are going to need long-term care yes. over the next 20 years. And as um, we don't fund those programs, don't have a healthcare system that funds those programs and takes care of sort of the people who are the most vulnerable, you know, in, in stages of their life, it is going to, that that burden is going to fall increasingly on women in mm-hmm. our society because they're the ones who are foregoing in full-time employment, um, job opportunities. And so the gains that women have made in recent years in the workplace could be erased because of just this, you know, this 
societal reality is that women are the ones who are taking care of families and yes. we need to find a way to, um, uh, to, to, to rebalance that out. And we can do that by having a Medicare for all system, a truly universal system, like every other modern country in, <laughs> in the world um, that has figured out some sort of version of a single payer system. Mm-hmm. You know, some countries have some sort of private insurance um, but for the most part, you know, it's a it's a it's a universal system backed by all of the residents, all of the citizens of a society, um, because that's how insurance works. You yes. need to have everyone paying into it because it'll be affordable for everyone. Yes. Uh, and then I'll have policy papers coming out on the Green New Deal, on the peace plan, on publicly financed elections, um, to just uh, you know mention a few. We have a lot to look forward to. From you, Mayor Ted. I want to thank you so much for listening today on The Naked Truce. Lydia had to run off to work. We do have day jobs along with what we like to do here. But she wanted to say thank you for listening. And thank you, Mayor Ted, for being on with us today. Thank you very much. Come for the sex. Stay for the Medicare for All.